All right, welcome everyone to Drisha's full program and the third of a four-part series on living and dying with dignity, themes in halakha and medical decision-making with Rabbi Daniel Reifman. Uh, Rabbi Reifman is the Rosh Kolel of the Drisha Summer Kolel and has taught Talmud and halakha at Drisha for close to 20 years. He holds a PhD in hermeneutics from Bar Ilan University and he received his um, rabbinic ordination and an MA in Tanakh from Yeshiva University. During the year, he teaches at Pardes Institute for Jewish Studies in Jerusalem and at the Institute for Advanced Torah Studies um, at Bar Ilan. So, and here he is. I'll turn this to you, uh, Rabbi Reifman. Let me make you. Thank around. you so much. Okay, here we go. Let me share my screen. We were, when we last left our heroes, discussing the issue of. Um, Discussing the, the the broader issue of what what treatment must we provide to uh, to dying patients, we had discussed this in terms of a set of four issues, which I don't want to put on the screen right now. We've discussed them and um, general issues that we've discussed in the four corners of the of the whiteboard and the question of what treatment must we provide to dying patients uh, in the middle, uh, and again those issues were life suffering, action or agency, and dignity. Um, and up until this point, we said that in terms of the issue of what treatment must one provide to a dying patient, it was essentially a tension between um, the, the issue of life and the obligation uh, within Jewish practice to provide, uh, to, to sustain life uh, in theory for as long as possible um, the idea that preserving life takes precedence over virtually all other halachic concerns. Um, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, we said there's a competing issue of uh, preventing suffering to, uh, to another human being, and specifically in this case to a patient who's dying and presumably in pain. Um, those two issues did not come head to head in any... Um, I would say practical medical context until the source that we saw at the end of the last class. In other words, we saw issues about, um, about preventing suffering, but they were primarily in terms of uh, narratives. We saw the Talmudic story about Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi's maid, the maid of Rabbi Yehuda the prince, who uh, made uh, the fateful decision, according to the Talmud story, on the day of his death, to uh, forestall or, or uh, interrupt the rabbi's praying so that his soul could depart because she saw that he was suffering. Um, and then we also saw another source that said there's an obligation not only to pray for somebody, for a sick person to live, but also to pray for a sick person to die if that's what's preferable for them. That's where we saw the issue of suffering come to the fore. In all other sources, we saw a concern for preserving life, albeit a, 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 a limited obligation to preserve life. And we said the distinction was between natural and artificial means of preserving someone's life. If something is natural, and again, we'll have to discuss what natural means in the context of modern medicine, but if something is natural, you can't remove it or you can't uh, you, 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 um, sorry, if something is, let's start with the artificial, if something is artificial, you may remove it if it's preventing the person from dying. 
But if something, if a condition is considered to be natural, then you have to leave it in place. You can't actively then introduce something else to cause the person to die or remove the natural means by which their life is being preserved. Okay. What we saw last time was the tshuva from Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, the response from uh, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who is one of the preeminent, uh, the preeminent halachic authority in the United States uh, and respected by Jews worldwide and across the, uh, the denominational spectrum um, in the mid to late 20th century. Um, we're going to see a lot of Rav Moshe Feinstein. I think it's unavoidable, especially when you're doing this area of halacha. But but in, even when you're when you're doing any uh, any modern halachic topic, of Rav Moshe Feinstein invariably comes up. Uh, there's a lot more to say about who he was and why he was so respected. I think we'll have a little time to do that next class before we finish the course. Um, in the meantime, I just want to look at this response again and 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 point out and really drive home the point that we finished with last time, which is. Um, the fact that Rav Moshe Feinstein is the one who situates life and suffering in an oppositional relationship within the context of modern medicine. How does he do that? Where does he see life and suffering come into conflict within the sources themselves? Okay, let me, let me just emphasize that point. Rav Moshe Feinstein as, as, a, as an ethicist um, would be uh, perfectly justified in saying, look, I see life as a value. I see suffering as a value. How do I balance those against one another? But he's not an ethicist or not merely an ethicist. He's first and foremost a legal or halachic authority. And halacha as a text-based legal system has to be grounded in pre-existing texts. So we can't simply come along and say, well, I think suffering is an important thing that reflects your, your sources. So again, he says as follows. On the practice of artificially sustaining potential organ donors past the point where they would normally live until the transplant is ready to be performed. Okay, here's the issue in front of him. He's dealing with this, this new technology of cadaveric organ transplants, eight, only a few months after the first human human heart transplant was performed. Um, and he says, look, we know that there are certain organs that you can't remove until a person is dead, right? Organs on which life depends, a heart, a lung. Um, now, it's possible that the victim who has, is, is on life support now and who will be the source of this organ, um, they might die sooner than you want, right? They might die sooner than is convenient or feasible for you to transplant their organ. To, with the, the, the term, it, it, again, it sounds, um, it sounds demeaning. It, 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 it has, in fact, a kind of immoral ring to it. We harvest organs. That's the term that's actually used in a medical context. Um, we harvest organs and you have to do it in a specific time frame where you have the recipient ready to accept the transplant, you have the transplant team uh, ready to perform the transplant. And therefore you might want to extend their life past the point where it would naturally, uh, where they would naturally live. So the question is, can you do that for the sake of the transplant rather than for the sake of the treatment of the patient? So he says as follows. In my humble opinion, it seems that it's not being done to heal him, but rather only to lengthen his life in the short term. If the short term that he lives by artificial means will be painful, then it's forbidden. 
So normally we think of it the opposite way. We think, uh, well, he's suffering, so you want to shorten his life. Again, um, the normally we associate preventing the patient from suffering with some sort of artificial intervention. I would want to, for example, withdraw treatment from the patient in order so that they die sooner to prevent their suffering. Whereas if I let the disease take its course naturally, that would be valuing life over suffering. In this case, it's the inverse. If I let the disease take its course, they will die sooner and that will prevent them from suffering. I might, however, in the interest of having a viable transplant, extend their life artificially. Am I allowed to do that? Rav Moshe Feinstein says no. Why? Because then I'm causing them to suffer more. What's the problem with allowing them to cause, causing them to suffer more? Why in this case does suffering outweigh extending their life? He says as follows. For it seems to me that this is the reason that one may remove something that's preventing the soul from departing when it doesn't involve an affirmative act. As Ramai explains, to prevent suffering, okay? Remember, we saw this above in cases or in a context that, that didn't speak to our modern medical sensibilities. We, in fact, didn't quite understand the, the, the mechanisms of what was going on here at all. But we saw a distinction between two phenomena. Okay, we didn't actually see, we saw this before, but I'll just see it here. It, we'll, we'll see it here in the, in the we'll quote it in the Ramah, Moshe Isserlis, who is uh, a pre, the preeminent uh, Ashkenazi posig from the 16th century, halachic authority from the 16th century, sorry, uh, 17th century. And similarly, it is forbidden to cause a dying person to die quickly. For, for example, a person who is a gosace, again, somebody on their deathbed for a long time and is unable to separate from the worlds of the living, it is forbidden to remove the cushion or the pillow from underneath him, as some wish to do, believing that certain bird feathers are delaying his death. And similarly, one may not move him from his place. If moving them from their place, actively intervening would cause them to die sooner, you're not allowed to do that because that would be artificial. However, if something which is preventing the soul from departing, if there is something which is preventing the soul from departing, for example, if there is a knocking sound near the house, such as a word chopper, or if there is salt on his tongue, and these are preventing the departure of the soul, it is permitted to remove these from there since this is not an affirmative act, but really removing an impediment. What makes these things an impediment? The fact that they're not natural, they're artificial. And therefore I'm allowed to remove them and let the disease take its course. Now, again, the issue here is not what do we do with wood choppers and salt on the tongue and bird feathers. The question is how we translate that into modern medical technology, which we're gonna do shortly. But again, you see here the distinction between natural and artificial. Says Refeinstein, if you're allowing the disease to take its course, then that's fine. If you're artificially extending the person's life, if that causes suffering, that's bad. Where does he suffering? He see suffering here. He says, look, if suffering were not an issue, what would happen? For, for here, let's read it inside his words. For, for permissible to lengthen our individual's life artificially, even when he is suffering, right? Let's say I had the right to do that. I had the right, I'd say, look, life is the most valuable thing in Judaism and therefore let me extend their life as much as possible. If that were okay, why would it be permissible to remove something that's preventing the soul from departing, right? Why would I be allowed to tell the wood chopper to stop chopping? Why would I be allowed to remove the salt from their tongue? On the contrary, we wouldn't have to bring things that prevent the soul from departing so that he would live longer. Rather, it's clear that one may not lengthen an individual's life in the short term when it will involve suffering. And we assume that the standard case in which one prevents a ghost from dying involves suffering. 
In other words, the fact that you tell the woodchopper to stop and remove the salt from the tongue means that we assume the default assumption is that they're suffering and therefore you should allow the disease to take its natural course. You with me so far? The only reason for that again is because suffering is a countervailing factor to life. Extending life to the nth degree is not the highest priority. There are two priorities here, preserving life and preventing suffering. And you have to weigh those in balance and the balance falls between natural and artificial. Naturally allowing the disease to take its course versus artificially extending it or shortening it. You with me? I think we're experiencing some connection issues uh, one more time. Rabbi Reifen? Where did you lose me? I'm really sorry. Uh, <laughs> we lost you maybe, yes. I don't know, like 10 seconds ago. Okay. Um, I think you asked, are you with me? And then we lost you. <laughs> well, then, so all I asked then is, <laughs> all I asked then is, does anybody have comments or questions? No, great. So let's just think about this case again. Here's somebody who's almost certainly comatose. Okay, if they're if they're an, if they're a candidate to be an organ donor, that means they're almost certainly comatose, and therefore not in a position to not only to dictate what they want, but maybe you would say, well, if they're comatose, they're not really suffering anyway, right? You could say that. And in fact, that seems to be what doctors would tend to say. Here is somebody who's comatose. They're about to die. And therefore, how do we relate to that person? So here's where I want to emphasize the language that we use, or uh, the transplant community, is that the right word? Um, that, that we often use in the context of transplants, again, harvesting the person's organs. At the point where somebody is being prepared to be an organ donor, how would we relate to that person? We don't relate to them as a person. In fact, we tend to relate to them as something um, more, um, we tend to relate to them as an object. We tend to relate to them as a, a biological system that we can now break into its component parts for a higher purpose. And that's a pretty important purpose. Somebody who's an organ donor, if their brain has been damaged, and that's why they're dying, but the rest of their body is intact, an organ donor can save the life, lives of five, six other people, right? If you donate their heart and each of their lungs and their kidneys and their liver, that's a lot of life that you're saving. But the question then is, at what cost to this person's, and now I want to bring in the word that we've been waiting for, dignity. In other words, their life is no longer the question. They're going to die. In fact, if life were the question, the only question, you would say, okay, let them live as long as they can, right? And then when they're ready to die, I'll take their organs and save other people's lives. When we bring in the issue of suffering here, we are introducing the issue of dignity because now we're relating to them as a person and not just about the question of life. We're relating to an aspect of the self that goes beyond their life. It's about their subjective experience. And this is where suffering 
is, is it enters into or becomes one component of what it means for halakha to re recognize the dignity of a person. Okay, you with me? Just making sure there are no connection problems. Excellent. Okay, can we say that? Can we say this person is really no longer much of a person at all and therefore their suffering is irrelevant? Obviously, thank you, Cynthia's already shaking her head. Obviously the answer is no, because I bothered to ask the question that way. And he says as follows, and regarding that which doctors say, that he no longer feels pain, one should not believe them, for it's possible they aren't capable of knowing this. Again, this is a skeptical note that Rav Moshe Feinstein is introducing here, which is actually pretty common in halachic literature about medical issues. There is often a tension, sometimes a kind of tension between two sources of authority, between doctors and rabbis. And here, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, as a halachic authority, is saying to the doctors, you don't really know what you're talking about. It's a little uncomfortable to deal with these kinds of cases because first of all, we don't necessarily know that he knows what he's talking about. What insights does Moshe Feinstein have to the, the, the psyche of a comatose patient and what they're experiencing? And on what grounds is he saying this? It also makes us uncomfortable because if we can't rely on what doctors say, then we're at a loss to do in any kind of medical treatment. So, so these ends, let, let it be said that often rabbis lob these accusations at doctors um, when they when, when out of uh, out of a kind of um, out of a kind of uh, reactionary approach to modernity in general. I don't want to say any of those things about Robert Moshe Feinstein, at least in this case, because I think actually this comment uh, has some some basis to it. Um, and that's been borne out, and I may have said this at the end of the last class, um, in the past 15 or 20 years where doctors have studied uh, what happens inside the brains of comatose patients and realized there's an awful lot that we don't know. Um, for example, um, again, I, I may have mentioned this, but it bears mentioning again, um, they've discovered that patients who are comatose, when they, if they are able to wake up from their coma, they're sometimes able to recognize voices of people they did not know before they were in a coma, which means that their brain, even in this comatose state, is processing sensory information. That's remarkable. That's something that we did not assume was going on, right? When somebody's sleeping, you don't assume that they can process voices they, that of, of somebody in the room while they're sleeping. And yet there's something going on inside the brain of a comatose patient that we don't quite understand. Um, and, and obviously will take a, 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 a great deal more research in order to determine. But to say conclusively that somebody is comatose or, or, or dying in this way because of some brain damage and therefore not suffering, says Rabbi Feinstein, that is not something that you can say with any degree of certainty. And again, here comes the default assumption. The default assumption is that a patient is suffering and therefore you're not allowed to artificially extend their life beyond what the disease would, uh, the, the natural course of the disease. Okay, questions or comments on this? Okay, I wanna actually delve into some of the specifics now about what treatment you must provide for, um, for uh, a, a dying patient. And this is where some of the, uh, some of the differences in, in opinion between halachic authorities come in. 
Um, and this, if anything, is where there would be significant differences between uh, the approaches of different denominations, which we'll talk a little about. So I want to start here with um, the Minchat Shlomo, Rabbi Shlomo Zaman Auerbach, who again was the preeminent halachic authority in Israel uh, around the same period as Rabbi Moshe Feinstein in the United States, mid to late 20th century. Um, and he says as follows. Many people are uncertain about the issue of treating a goseis. There are those who rule that one must violate Shabbat to save even a moment of life, i.e. to extend the life of one who will certainly die. So too, one must force a dying patient to accept treatment since he is not master over his own life, such as he has the right to forfeit even one moment. Okay? So he's setting out this issue and saying, look, there are halachic authorities who say that life is the preeminent value. Why would you say that life is the preeminent value? For the reasons that we've said. If life takes precedence over Shabbat, over Kashrut, over virtually any other halachic concern, again, except for the big three, so to speak, murder, incest, and, uh, and idolatry, if life is so important in halacha, what message does that send? That we should preserve life at any cost. And what does that say about a, a person's own sense of self? What right does the patient have to come in and say, well, this is what I want, or this is what I don't want? According to the position that he's expressing now, the patient doesn't have a lot of say. The fact that life is so important removes, again, from the perspective that he's presenting here, this is not going to be his, his position, but he's saying, look, there are people who say that the value of life removes, in a sense, an element of the person's self. None of us, according to this position, is master over our own lives. We don't have the right to forfeit our life. There's an element of the self that is not ours, or an element of the self that is not ourselves, so to speak. But he disagrees, or partially disagrees. But it seems to me, he says, that if the patient is experiencing severe pains and afflictions, or even intense psychological pain, again, we distinguishing two kinds of pain, physical pain and mental anguish, He's acknowledging both of them as being halachically significant. He says that one must provide him with food and oxygen even against his will, but one may withhold the medications that are causing the patient pain by prolonging his life if he so desires. So what's this distinction between oxygen and food on the one hand and medications on the other? On what basis is he making that distinction? Or what does that distinction mean in broader terms? Just to make sure you're with me. Something well, it's basic, uh, natural versus artificial. Good. Natural versus artificial, right? He considers natural to be food and oxygen. He considers something artificial to be medication. Now, that's a very, um, that's a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, reductive, right? Is it true that all medication is artificial? Is it true that all feeding or oxygen is natural? Okay, hold that thought. But that's his basic distinction. And therefore he says, this is what you can do if the patient says that they're suffering. So again, he's acknowledging suffering as on mind. It is highly preferable to explain to him that one moment of repentance in this world is preferable to an eternity in the next world as the Talmud states. It's a privilege to suffer seven years rather than die immediately. What do you make of this? 
Emily's shaking her head. <laughs> Why? Um, because to the degree that uh, suffering can affect a sense of self, let alone dignity, uh, it's not clear why um, uh, why uh, suffering in this world uh, should be uh, preferable. Uh, yeah, I mean, certain kinds of suffering, both physical and psychological, it seems to me, can really undermine a person's sense of Tselemelo King. Okay, so notice that he's bringing in here one specific source. Okay, and again, what kind of source is this? What, what's, what kind of statement is this? This is something we're gonna talk about a little later today. When we talk about, we talk about it a little when we talk about stories, and I wanna focus on it now in terms of the nature of the statement that he's quoting here. One moment of repentance, again, this is a paraphrase of a passage from the Talmud. One moment of repentance in this world is preferable to an eternity in the next. Okay, what kind of statement is that? What, what kind of um, discourse is that? What kind of language is he speaking here? We don't often think about it this way, but we, we ourselves in, in the context of a discussion might involve, uh, might invoke many different kinds of discourses. We might choose to speak many different kinds of languages. And you can tell in the context of a discussion when you've shifted languages, because sometimes the other person will say, well, no, that's not fair, you're, you're, you're switching gears here. Or the other person might not understand you at all if they don't share your value system. If you were to quote this statement to somebody who's not Jewish, for example, um, they would, or somebody who's not religious, somebody who doesn't necessarily believe in repentance, um, somebody who doesn't believe in God, uh, they would say, well, that, that, that makes no sense to me. Right? That statement makes no sense to my value system. A moment of repentance in this world is preferable to an eternity in the next world. What's the next world anyway, right? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm recalling a joke that Emily once told me, but not too, too long for now. Um, Daddy, what's the next world, right? But when you're um, saying, when you're talking about types of language, um, is dogma a type of language? It's a, it's a declarative. Dogma is a type of language. But what, what kind of dogma? This is, this is religious dogma, right? This is a kind of theological statement, right? Oh. Involving language about God, about religion. It's, it's invoking a certain reality that you may or may not buy into, this world, the next world, right? Repentance as another factor which, which, which plays into understanding what suffering is. Can suffering equal repentance or suffering something, something that brings repentance? Can suffering be something that is cathartic, that purifies yourself, your soul, something? You can in many different ways. Many different people, many different kinds of people value suffering, attach positive value to suffering as something cathartic, as something religious. So. He's attaching a different kind of value to suffering here, one which is positive, and, and, and we talked about this. But he's saying this is something you should actively try to convince the patient of. In other words, he's, he's leaning back towards those who say life, is pre life takes precedence over suffering. But he does so in a very specific context. 
which is the patient is God-fearing. In other words, you share a value, you, the, the halachic voice, share a value system with the patient. They're still of sound mind, right? In other words, they have the ability to decide for themselves. They are, they are um, coherent and conscious and cogent. Um, right. In other words, the fact that he's bringing in another value to suffering here is not disrupting the sense of dignity that this person has. And the fact that suffering is something that plays into a value of dignity and a value of self. You're trying to convince them of something, but still allowing them to come to a final decision. And therefore, even though here he says that life is preferable, he's not going all the way back to the first opinion that that he quoted, which says that a person is not master over his own life. In this case, the person can actually choose. Do I prefer life or suffering? You may try to convince them that life is preferable, even a life of suffering over a, a shortened life with less suffering, but ultimately it's their choice. And therefore, this is where agency plays into a sense of dignity. Agency in the sense that we are acknowledging that the patient has the right to choose. Okay, And this is the first time we've actually seen that factor. We've seen the idea of acknowledging the patient's, uh, the, the, the patient's subjective experience in terms of shortening their suffering, but this is the first time that we've actually seen the patient has the right to choose. Okay, questions or comments up to here? Uh, well, if I may, Danny, um, living longer is not the same as or equivalent to uh, repentance, because it seems to me that first you'd have to say to the person, you know, you can you can give your suffering meaning if you use this opportunity to repent. We haven't yeah. talked about repentance before. That's true. That's true. And in fact, you know, you, he's picking this sentence out of the Talmud. The Talmud is full of. I mean, the, the Talmud has entire treatises on the meaning of suffering. Uh, those of you who have uh, been following Dafyomi in this Dafyomi cycle, um, even if you only got through the first, say, 10, 15 pages of Masachah Brachot, the very beginning, um, that is where the Talmud goes into, um, no pun intended, pun intended, why not, excruciating detail <laughs> as to the meaning of suffering in Judaism. Uh, it's all over the place, right? part of the human condition is to suffer. Um, the, the, the rabbis or the it, it, people in the ancient world no doubt suffered generally more than we do. Um, and, and therefore they lived harsher lives and therefore they thought about this problem a lot and they have a lot to say about it. And this is not the only value that Judaism attaches, the, not only the religious, value, the religious value that Judaism attaches to suffering, okay? So this may be one perspective. The patient, uh, if they have been doing tough year, we may come back to you with another value of suffering, which might not be so positive, or might not be something that they that they um, that they uh, that, that, that they value positively. Okay, um, let's get into some of the finer details here, and then I want to segue into some comparison to other. Um, other perspective within medical ethics, and then finally introduce the last topic, which we're going to do next week, which is what treatment may you provide to a patient if they so choose. Okay, so we mentioned a few minutes ago that, uh, that um, Rabbi Shlomo Zaman Auerbach distinguishes between food and oxygen in 
uh, as being natural, as things that you must provide, versus medication, which are things that are artificial and therefore you don't necessarily have to provide. Um, Moshe Feinstein obviously deals with these details as well, and here he gets into the, some of the same issues. Largely, he agrees, and I should say that within the orthodox, uh, within the orthodox world, that distinction between food and oxygen in one hand, and um, and medication on the other is is a good rough distinction. The conservative movement generally follows the same thing as well, with again uh, some some one or two caveats that I'll, uh, that I'll mention in a few minutes. Um, but there are a lot of details, and, and as usual, the devil is in the details. So let's tackle them one at a time. First of all, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein comes and says, regarding a patient in dire condition who cannot breathe, one must supply him with oxygen even though he cannot be healed in order to relieve him of his suffering. For the pain of not being able to breathe is very great, and the oxygen relieves this. Okay. So again, he says that breathing, you have to, you have to provide them with oxygen. Why do you have to provide them with oxygen though? What's his first statement? It's not only, or actually he doesn't have, say at all here, that oxygen is needed. You have to provide them with oxygen because it's something that you naturally have. Why do you have to provide them with oxygen? Because otherwise they'll suffer, okay? Notice that the preeminent value here is not life and not allowing life to take its course for preventing suffering. And asphyxiating is a very painful way to die. Okay, uh, unfortunately, we're in uh, we're in a world where uh, these are the kinds of medical decisions that are being made every day. Um, hi, um, what's the term? Um, dis, I, I forget how to pronounce it. Dis, um, I think it's dyspnea. Is that the way to pronounce it? D y s p n e a. Um, shortness of breath. Um, tragically, this is one of the main uh, phenomena that, that, that people experience, one of the main symptoms people experience when they're suffering from, uh, from COVID. Um, it's very disturbing not to be able to get a breath, to feel like you're drowning, even if you're not in water. Um, and therefore, he says, oxygen is necessary, something that you must provide to prevent suffering. Okay, but how do you provide oxygen? Generally, if somebody can't breathe and they're in a hospital setting, what do you do? You intubate them. You put a tube down their throat. That's not a simple procedure. In fact, it's one of the more complicating factors, complica complicating elements within treatment of COVID because when you intubate somebody, one of the things they often do is cough because it's very uncomfortable to have something shoved down your throat. And of course, if they have COVID, um, then they would cough in the face of the physician who's intubating them, putting them at risk. All of that aside, um, it's not a simple procedure. And once the tube is in, it's not a simple procedure to get it out, to extubate them. And therefore, sometimes, even if a patient does realize that they need oxygen or to be able to survive, they're nervous that if you intubate them, you will not then be able to extubate them. Because one of the things that's a kind of baseline assumption within halacha is that withdrawing treatment is much harder than withholding treatments. What's the problem with withdrawing treatment, halachically speaking? If somebody has been intubated, and I know that once I extubate them, they will not be able to survive without the oxygen. Effectively, what, I have, what have I done if I extubate them? I've killed them. 
right? This is a distinction that we saw back in the, uh, cited by the Ramban, by Nachmanides, right? You're not allowed to do things, right? That might cause the person to die, even if touching them or moving them might cause them to die, you're not allowed to do that. So obviously if they need oxygen, you would not be necessarily allowed to extubate them unless they can survive for some period of time without oxygen. It's a very complicated issue, which is dealt with extensively by contemporary postgame as to when you can extubate and when you're not allowed to extubate. But again, this is an issue that halacha takes very seriously, that if you're going to cause the person to die, then that's not something that you can, uh, that, you, that, that, that you're allowed to do. Okay, but Ramosh Feinstein is not addressing that and they don't want to address that because it's a much too technical topic for us to have, have time to really do uh, properly. And again, our analysis is more in terms of the themes rather than the specific practices of end-of-life care. Okay, so he continues as follows. But since it's not clear if he would die were the oxygen removed, one must supply him with oxygen bit by bit each time for an hour or two. And when the oxygen runs out, one should check if he's still alive. And in this way, there will be no concern for causing loss of life or for negligence in his care, even for the most short-term life. What's the solution, he says? You need to provide them with oxygen, again, to prevent them from suffering. But you know that in intubating them, you're also putting them in a position where they might be able, you not, might not be able to take them off the oxygen. What's his solution? Again, back in, I forget what year this particular response was written, but it's certainly no in the 1970s. What's his solution here? You put the oxygen, you put the oxygen supply on a timer. What does that allow you to do? It allows you, if you see at some point they are not breathing, to extubate them without concern that you have killed them because you see they're no longer breathing independently. We'll talk about this again in a few minutes because um, you, you, you may sense that this technique of putting them on a timer, right? Seems very much like a Shabbos timer, right? Um, it's a legal loophole. Um, loopholes seem awfully suspicious. Loopholes seem um, artificial. <laughs> Um, you're, you're kind of playing games, right? Well, either you do have to provide them with oxygen or you don't have to provide them with oxygen. What does it mean to put that on a timer? Hold that thought. What's notable here is he says you have to provide them with oxygen, but as opposed to um, as opposed to uh, Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Arbach, uh, Moshe Feinstein insists this is to prevent them from suffering. So watch what he says now about providing them with hydration and nutrition. Okay, this is in a continuation to the previous uh, to the previous responsum. He says as follows. Similar to the response above, you ask regarding a patient in dire condition who cannot eat on his own if one must feed him intravenously in order to lengthen his life, as is in pain, for not eating will cause him additional pain. Okay, if somebody needs nutrition and you can't feed them for whatever reason, do you have to provide them with intravenous nutrition? He says as follows. It's obvious that one must feed him things that are not harmful, for they certainly strengthen him a little, even if the sick person himself does not feel it, and even if his caretakers are not aware of it. And it is not at all similar to giving medication. The reason is simply that eating is a natural thing that is necessary for life, and even if an animals require food. So here he brings in the natural artificial distinction. He says, look, eating is natural. And therefore, he says, unlike medication, which would you, you would be allowed to withhold so as not to extend a person's suffering, 
All else being equal, you do have to provide them with food, even if it means that you will extend their life and suffering. Okay? So here, he invokes something very similar to what Rav Shalom and Orabah said a few minutes ago, that feeding is something that's natural, and therefore the default assumption is that you have to provide them with food, even intravenously. What could you have said? Let's just stop here and think for a minute. Argue back, play devil's advocate for a minute. Well, the means would be artificial though to try and get them. Oh. Nutrition is natural, assuming that you're eating, right? Is sticking a tube into my vein a natural way to eat? It's eating, right? It's nutrition. It, you, it, it ends up with the same results, right? My body is getting the nutrition it needs, but it's an awfully artificial way for that to happen. You could make that argument, okay? Hold that thought. And we feed the patient against his will, only in the sense that he is an adult and does so of his own accord, though not because he wants to, but rather others are pressuring him to do so, okay? So here's where he starts to draw a fine line. He says, let's say the patient is a little hesitant. Let's say the patient's not sure that he wants this. If you can pressure them to do so, if you say, look, this is really necessary, otherwise you're gonna die and so on, and you're allowed, you can pressure him to do so, in other words, you can convince him even by being a little heavy handed, then you do it. However, he adds, to feed him in a way that is genuinely coercive, such that one must hold him by force to feed him, one may not do so to a competent adult when he doesn't want to eat, and all the more so if he thinks that eating is detrimental for him, even if the doctor says it's good for him, okay? So here's where he diverges from other orthodox postkin, from other orthodox halachic authorities. Most other halachic, orthodox halachic authorities will say feeding is natural and therefore it's something that must be done because again, you have to allow nature to take its course and one of the components of nature is eating. Here comes Ramosha Feinstein and says not necessarily so. In the case where the patient expresses a clear will not to eat, and such that in order to feed them and in order to give them intravenous nutrition, you would have to hold them down. That's where the patient's will takes precedence. And again, here we see agency or choice, specifically in the sense of choice, as being a critical component in how we, ultimately he says, it's your, let me read it to you. you. Just add, could you repeat what you said? Uh, just the past five seconds were a little glitchy. Sure. Um, he says that here is where Rabbi Feinstein acknowledges agency in the sense of choice as a critical component in their medical care. And again, I want to say that that's an element of dignity that he's invoking here. And he says as follows. For it is dangerous for the patient who thinks that eating is detrimental to feel that others aren't listening to him. So what he says is that we're treating the patient as a whole. It's not simply a matter of extending their life because again, extending the patient's life would be treating the, the patient as an organism, right? It's like you're saying, um, I used to work in a lab, a bio lab. So I would work with flies and whatever, uh, flies are alive, but they die so fast that you don't usually think about them. But uh, I had a friend who was working in a, rat, a lab with rats and mice. Um, and there you think of them as uh, living creatures. Uh, you, you relate to them as living creatures. Sometimes you want your mice to live because they're an important organism in your experiment. 
Um, sometimes extending a person's life is not acknowledging their self. It's saying we want you as a biological organism to continue as long as possible. And when they're kicking and screaming, in some cases, literally, that they don't want that, it's more detrimental to the person, to the treatment of the person, not to acknowledge them. So here he invokes other elements that are kind of beyond the scope of what I want to address. Let's just read it inside. For it is this reason that the sages instituted the disbursements of a shriv a person near death, are legally effective even regarding general matters. So this is an important point when it comes to uh, acknowledging the, to, to um, uh, not end of life care, but end of life legal issues. If somebody on their deathbed says, I wanna give my assets to this person or that person or this institution or that institution, they may not have time to effect a, a, a legally binding will, but there's a, there's a, a legal institution of shriv which is the status of somebody near death that requires the, their heirs and in fact the court to abide by their wishes even if they don't have time or the means to affect a legal will. Um, so if that's true, and why did they do that? Why did the sages do that? Because we want a person to feel like they were acknowledging their, their wishes to know right before the end of their life that their um, that 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 their that their their wishes and their their last that their last wishes uh, will be honored. Okay, that gives them a sense of peace at the end of a person's life. And all the more so, he says that we should be concerned to heed his wishes on matters regarding his medical treatment. Okay, so again, it's a matter of acknowledging their ability to choose their agency at the end of life. However going back to trying to convince the person, we should try to influence him to do as the doctor orders, but if he refuses, we should not do anything. If it is possible to feed him without his knowledge, okay, again, possibly you can do it in secret without impacting their sense of self, then we should do so as long as the doctor is a known expert. Again, the doctor has to really know what she's doing in order to know, in order to, to, to be able to, to go behind a person's back, so to speak, and feed them without their knowledge. Okay, um, this is a critical response because when the Knesset in, uh, in the, I think it was in the mid-aughts, was debating what became eventually Israel's dying patient law, uh, there was an impasse between uh, the religious members of the committee and the secular members of the committee over this exact issue. To what extent do we acknowledge a patient's right to, to, to determine their course of treatment and as to whether they can refuse certain basic things like oxygen and food? Um, secular, the secular lawmakers were obviously influenced by the dominant position within secular bioethics, which is that a person is ultimately the right, has, has the right to determine what happens to his or her body, which we'll talk about a little more in a minute. Um, the religious members of the committee, and the committee was led by a, uh, a, a religious ethicist who's also a doctor uh, named um, Avraham Steinberg, who's head of, uh, who's head of uh, neurology at, um, uh, at Shari Tzedek Hospital and very respected on many different medical issues, including, of course, end-of-life care. Um, they were at an impasse. And ultimately what broke the logjam was Rabbi Moshe Feinstein's position on this particular topic that said that if the person is suffering, they have the right to determine treatment even about things as basic as food and nutrition. 
um, relying on Rabbi Moshe's, um, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein's position allowed even those members, religious members of the committee, of course, in Israel were uh, virtually all or probably all Orthodox, uh, to accept certain caveats and certain make certain concessions. And in the end, the final document they produced was, um, was approved by I think about 80% of the committee. You know anything about Israeli politics? 80 getting getting 80 percent of anybody in the Knesset or anybody involved in any community to agree on anything is nothing short of a miracle. Um, so, so this is a critical response um, in 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 from a traditional religious religious perspective to acknowledge the patient's right. Let me reframe that because I don't want to use the term right here. To acknowledge the patient's ability and agency to choose their treatments that was critical. Um, should we call it a right? Now, now that I use that word, I put it on the table. Do we want to call this a right? Why or why not? Let me just show you um, the, uh, let me share a different screen with you now um, and show you um, hunger strikers. <laughs> Um, what if somebody wants to not to eat as a way of expressing protests um, beyond our, beyond our uh, the scope of what we're going to deal with now? Um, it's a critical issue in terms of broader bioethics. Um, do you have the right to force feed somebody who um, who wants to strike? Uh, this is an issue that came up for the first time. Anybody know when? In England, um, in the early suffragist movement, is that what you said? Uh, before the IRA, <laughs> and it came up again in the IRA in the 80s, um, when um, I believe it was Margaret Thatcher who said uh, about some of them, but I'm starved. Um, force feeding uh, is, is, is quite brutal in certain cases. Uh, the, the female members of the IRA who were, who were hunger striking in the mid 80s uh, were force fed, the men were not, and some of the men died. Um, it's a very, very touchy subject. Um, I'm familiar with it from the Israeli perspective when you have um, Palestinians, um, Palestinian prisoners who are striking, uh, often hunger striking. Uh, there was, I believe, recently a death, though not from hunger, from disease uh, of a Palestinian patient. That was a very tragic incident and, uh, and is something that I think is still being uh, looked into exactly what the circumstances were. Uh, the Israeli doctors who work in prisons are apparently uh, quite heroic in terms of developing personal relationships with Palestinian prisoners and trying to uh, prevent them uh, from, from doing damage themselves when it comes to hunger striking. Not our issue for now. It's relevant only because sometimes the choice to not to, 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 to not eat or drink is a choice that a patient, a dying patient might make. It's actually a less painful way to die than other kinds of uh, choices that a patient might make. Um, and therefore, it's something that a patient might cogently choose as a course of action. Can we allow them to choose that? Rabbi Moshe Feinstein says, under certain circumstances, yes. There are other cases or other kinds of treatment that come up in the discussion of um, Hold on a second. Oh, let me backtrack again. I lost my train of thought. Right. Is it a right? 
here is another area where halakha would diverge or traditional religious perspective would diverge from a contemporary secular perspective, even if they agree that we allow the patient to choose, saying that it's a right is not thing that necessarily has religious uh, currency. If you look closely at what Rabbi Moshe Feinstein says here, the way that he puts it is, and again, I'll share the screen with you, and then I'll share another document that we'll look at more closely uh, when we finish up next week. Um, again, if you look at the way he says it here, it's that we have a responsibility. It's our responsibility to make sure that the patient, as a whole patient, is being taken care of as best we can. And therefore, if you see here, for example, he says, um, it's dangerous for the patient who thinks that eating is detrimental to feel that others aren't listening to him. In other words, we have a responsibility. It's our agency and our responsibility to act in the best way possible to treat the patient as an object rather than as a thinking and choosing subject. And again, he says over here, why must we provide them with oxygen? Because they're going to be suffering and we have a responsibility to prevent them from suffering. It is a little reductive to say that the primary value in a religious legal system is responsibility and the primary value in a secular legal system is rights, but it's not totally off base. Meaning I don't want to reduce it to simply rights versus responsibilities, secular versus legal, secular versus religious. But there is a certain degree of truth to saying that a religious legal system places more emphasis or gives more value to responsibility or uses the language, here we are talking about language again, the language of responsibility more than the language of rights, as opposed to a secular legal system, which uses the language of rights more than of responsibility. We'll complicate that a little more next week, but just to drive that home here, let me share with you this article. This is an article um, by two secular bioethicists about refusal of hydration and nutrition. And their conclusion, we'll talk about their arguments a little more next time. Their conclusion is, they're talking about, this came in the context of the Terry Schiavo case. Some of you may remember it. We'll talk about it a little more next week. Um, specifically, they say, the reason patients have a right to refuse nutrition and hydration is not because they are provided medically or artificially, again, they, they say it doesn't matter whether it's being provided intravenously or naturally through the person's mouth. Rather, the right to refuse stems from a right to refuse any unwanted intervention, medical or otherwise, and is grounded in the fundamental rights to self-determination and bodily integrity that are deeply rooted in the American legal tradition. Okay, from a secular perspective, from, they say, from an American legal perspective, a person has a right to determine what happens with their body, which prohibits any unwanted touching as battery. You don't want me to touch you and I touch you, that can be sexual harassment. In a medical context, that could be battery if you're providing me with a treatment that I don't want or some, something, anything that I don't want, whether it's treatment or not. That's their perspective and their reason for saying that a patient can refuse any kind of nutrition, hydration, or as they say, even oxygen. <coughs> in this case, however, halakha would frame the issue differently. Touching somebody who doesn't want a certain kind of treatment would not be considered battery, but you have to assess whether touching them is the best treatment for them. 
In some cases, touching them might be murder because you're shortening their life artificially. In other cases, touching them or providing them with treatment that they don't want is detrimental, not because it, it shortens their life artificially, but because it reduces their sense of self as somebody who cannot choose. Okay, um, we're gonna leave it here for today. Um, when we come back next week, we'll talk briefly again about intubation and the sense of uh, the question as to whether providing somebody with art art oxygen artificially is the same as allowing them to breathe naturally. Again, that natural artificial distinction in terms of means of delivery is going to be important again. And then what I wanna discuss is what kind of treatment may you provide to patients? And here we're gonna dip our toe into the issue of euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide. And we're gonna talk about kinds of treatments that you can provide, a treatment that some patient might ask for in order to lengthen their life, but might actually shorten it, a kind of experimental treatment that might result in their premature death. But also, uh, within a halachic perspective, or from within a halachic framework, providing the patient with, um, with uh, pain relief uh, in a way that may actually shorten their life, even as it also reduces their suffering. Okay, that's the agenda for next week. Uh, I will wish you a Hanukkah Sameach, a very happy Hanukkah, and, um, and look forward to seeing you one more time next Wednesday, next Tuesday, rather. Thank you, Rabbi Reifman. Uh, this was a very interesting third class in this series. I'm looking forward to the final class uh, next Tuesday. And thank you and happy Hanukkah to everyone else who joined us today on Zoom, on Drisha Live and on Facebook. Uh, we will be live again this evening at 8 p.m. for a special lecture on praying for the welfare of our president, Perspectives from Halakha and History with Dr. Jonathan Sarna. We also continue our full program uh, tomorrow at uh, 8 p.m. with the third of a four-class series on anger and Kabbalah, confronting divine and um, humane, human rage through the Zohar by Dr. Danny, Nathaniel Berman and Rabbi David Silber. I apologize. In addition, we have many more classes happening right now. You can find out more information as well as the registration links on our website at www.drisha.org slash classes or watch live at www.drisha.org slash live. Thank you again for this opportunity to learn with you, Rabbi Reifman. And thanks again to everyone who attended. And we hope to see you this evening, tomorrow, or at any of our upcoming class here at Drisha. Chag Sameach. Chag Sameach.